Today we're going to be in James chapter 2, but I want you first to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 18. Matthew 25, verse 18. It's going to set the context for our study today in James chapter 2. By the way, does anyone need a Bible? We have Bibles here you could read along with. If you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, we'd be happy to give you a Bible for free. Anyone? Okay. Well, praise the Lord. Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 18. By the way, forgive me today. You may hear me clear my throat a lot today. I've been been a rough few weeks. I'll just put it that way. Verse 18, Matthew 25 reads as follows. But he who received the one talent went away and dug and dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. And then verse 23, uh, verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 28. This is the master now talking to the one person who hid that talent. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, Even what he does not have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless slave into outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The passage that I just uh, cited is from Jesus' parable of the talents. And it's found in Matthew 25. And a parable, it is a parable that is about readiness, and it is a parable that is about faithfulness. It follows the Lord's parable of the ten virgins, right? And the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids was a parable about readiness and being faithful and persevering and waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. Now, in order to understand it, it's important that you understand that a talent is not what we would call a talent, like I could sing or I could speak or whatever. A talent is a unit of measure. It is a weight. And there were various talents. There were talents of gold. There were talents of silver, talents of copper. And they all had a monetary worth. So the the gist of the parable is this master goes away on a trip and he calls three of his servants together and he says, hey, I'm giving you, I'm entrusting you with here. I'm entrusting you with this measure of worth, five talents. And then to another, he says, I'm entrusting you with two talents. And then to another, he says, I'm entrusting you with one talent. And if you read the parable, the parable says that the one with the five immediately went out and he made five more. So he doubled the investment that the master had given him. The one who had two did likewise. He doubled the investment. He made four. But the one who had one, as we just read, took that talent, buried it in the ground, right? Well, then the master returns, and the master calls the three men into account. And to the one he gave five, the servant comes, Lord, you gave me five. I made you five more. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little. I'm going to make you faithful in much. And he calls the other one. He says, Lord, you gave me two. I doubled down. I got two more. And he says, well done, faithful servant. But then he calls into account the one he gave one. The one who gave one 
gives this big elaborate excuse. He said, I know you're a man who you reap where you don't sow and you get the reward where you don't plow. So I was afraid that I would lose this talent. So I buried it in the ground. I did nothing with it. I did nothing with it. Now, we would tend to think in this day and age that that's a reasonable, that, that sounds reasonable to me, right? You know, hey, I safeguarded it. But the master wasn't pleased. As a matter of fact, the master rebukes him harshly. And he tells him, if you knew I was a man who reaps where he doesn't sow, you should have taken that talent, put it in the bank. Hey, at least I could have got some interest back on it. But you were lazy and you were slothful, he tells him. And in verse 28, he says, Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away from him. This is what separates the believer from the unbeliever. This is what separates it. Believers bring forth works of righteousness. Belief isn't a dull intellectual acceptance of mere facts. But belief in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord produces in the believer's life works of righteousness. We already saw last week in James 2.17, James writes, faith without works is a dead faith. That's what he says. And I said to you that word dead is the Greek word nekros. It means, you know, we, we get the word, the English word necrosis, right? If a portion of the flesh, if you get gangrene or you get anything along, we say a necrosis is set in. The skin is dying, it's no longer living anymore. This is what James was talking about in 2.17. And today we're going to continue. We're going to look at verses in James 2, chapter 2, verses 18 and 20. And we're going to continue to probe this, this great section on faith and works. And we're going to look at James' continuing thought on this subject regarding this topic. And what we want to see is, do we have a living, active, practical faith rooted and grounded in Christ brought forth by the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit within us? Or is our faith merely words? Words that are not accompanied by any kind of works of righteousness. James is going to tell us today that once again, he uses the term, well, faith without works is a dead faith, but another word for that is it's useless it's a useless faith. It's of no benefit. Empty professions of faith. Individuals declaring, I am a Christian, without the definitive proof of that life eternal is something that we are going to examine in our text. Take, turn in your Bibles now to James chapter 2. And just for context... I'm going to read from verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. It reads as follows. 
What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Just for context, again, James is writing to early Jewish Christian believers. It's one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. These were Jews that were forced out of Judea by Roman authorities, and they were dispersed all over. And as I said many times before, the book of James is a book about living practical faith. Living practical faith. What does saving faith look like? That's what he's addressing for us. Many today will define saving faith by a deed that they did. Oh, I I accepted Christ. I walked down an aisle. I was baptized. I did this. I did that. And they'll define their faith that way. But is that how the Bible defines Christian faith? Is it how the Bible defines living, active, vibrant, and I'll use this term all the time, biblical faith? Faith that is in accordance with the Scripture. Faith that is in accordance with the commands and the laws of God. James writes to these Christians to give them practical instruction. And in this passage of James 2, 14 through 26, James makes the point that saving faith is always accompanied by good fruit. We could define good fruits as works of righteousness. Works of righteousness. Now, I want to be crystal clear, because this is really critical. What comes first? Saving faith. Faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. That's what comes first. We do not put the cart before the horse. We do not say, do these works, and these works will generate saving faith. It's just the opposite. You must come to that place where you are saved in Christ Jesus, where you are born again, where you have entrusted yourself completely and wholly to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and righteous works will follow. There's another thing I want to add, because sometimes when we talk about this subject, this gets confused as well. Nowhere am I implying, neither does the Holy Scriptures imply perfection. Can we get that right? Nowhere does the Scripture imply perfection. You're never going to slip up. You're never going to trip. You're never going to fall. You're never going to do something wrong. If you want a poster boy for something wrong, you're looking at him. Right? We will stumble and fall. 
The scripture is very clear about it. The righteous fall, but they what? They get back up again. Because it's God who does that. So first comes saving faith, then works of righteousness, and we're not talking about perfection. I want to put this out there as we set the context for this. Good works follow. They are a byproduct of saving faith. And that byproduct gives evidence to the work of Christ in your life. I know that many of you have a testimony that could be similar to mine. I used to be one way, God saved me, and I'm another way. I used to be a horrible person, I used to be lost, I used to be bound in sin. I had what A.W. Tozer and some of the early fathers call a crisis of the encounter with the holy God, with Christ, whereby I repented of my sins, I turned from my sins, I entrusted myself completely and wholly by faith to Jesus Christ. And then God began the work of sanctification. He began to separate me unto himself. All the old things, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, guess what? They pass away. And everything has become new. And I know that many of you, your testimony include things like alcohol addiction or drug addiction or whatever. And listen, it doesn't matter. You don't have to have a fancy addiction or a fancy problem. You didn't have to end up in prison to find out that you were a sinner. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But good works and works of righteousness will give evidence to saving faith. Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples in John 15, 8, said this, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. My Father's glorified. Those good deeds, those works of righteousness, that good fruit that's being produced, by the saving grace of Jesus Christ, hey, guess what? That gives glory to the Father. The Father is glorified. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said these words, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven. And by the way, can I say something? If ever we do good works, that are intended to bring glory to us. You know, I'm going to show them, I'm going to go out there on the street corner, man, I'm going to give out a thousand tracks, or I'm going to... If that is what we are doing, listen, that's wrong. You see this every year around the holidays. And by the way, I'm, 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 not, I'm not taking a shot, okay? Let me, let me just put this. But, you know, usually the day before Thanksgiving, right, one of the news stories that they'll have are the people that are working in the soup kitchens. Right, I'm going to be working in the soup kitchens on Thanksgiving Day. I'm going to be giving up, you know, and they're going to do it. Now, that's honorable. That's good. Don't confuse what I'm not saying. I'm not knocking that. But there's always one thing that makes, catches my attention. And it's usually in the interview when it says, it makes me feel so good inside. I get it. I mean, I get it. But the motivation should be to love to serve others. Christianity, I always say this, Christianity is not a spectator sport. Christianity is not a thing where we can be comfortable on the sidelines. 
nor is Christianity a me sport, a solo sport. As believers in Christ, we serve Christ and we serve others. As Christ served the disciples, so we in the church serve one another. And what it is always about, it is always about the glory of God, that God would receive the glory, that God would be honored, that God would be praised. The Apostle John writes these words in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says this, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Compare this to James 2.18. James writes, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What good is it if we profess the name of Christ what good is it if we profess the name of Christian but we don't obey the law of God? What good is it? A lot of world is, is turned off to the church because they say, oh, there's so much hypocrisy in the church. That always amazes me too. So I go, I don't go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Well, there are hypocrites on your job, right? You don't quit that. And there are hypocrites in, in politics, but I don't see many people leaving the United States. I mean, all you have to do is look at our government and you want to see hypocrisy. But I don't see people leaving the country. There's hypocrisy everywhere. And you know what? Many who are in the church, and I'm not, I'm not going to deny that there aren't hypocrites at the church at large. But one of the primary reasons that is, is that there are people who identify as believers in Christ who are not born again. And a lot of times they look like us, and they sound like us, and they use the vernacular, and they use the buzzwords, praise the Lord, hallelujah, oh, I love Jesus. But we as believers in Christ are called to serve constantly, to push forward in the things of God. And our faith will bear evidence of that righteousness. In verse 18, James makes the point regarding true biblical faith by stating it is one thing to say one has faith, but it's another thing to prove it. And the proof itself are the works of righteousness. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinthians, wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Speaking of himself, he said, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and the power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite, commenting on this text, says this, The kingdom of God does not lie in words at all. 
The kingdom of God lies in power that indwells those words. You cannot have power without the words. But you can have the words without power. Oh, church, that it would be said of us, it would be said of every biblical faithful church, that those who are in those churches would be men and women of power. And that power is going to give evidence of the, of the new birth of Jesus Christ. And that evidence is going to be works of righteousness, works that are done for the glory of God, works that are done that give evidence to that new birth. I often say, hey, our confession of Christ, if we confess ourselves to be a Christian, well, then our commitment to Christ should match that confession. Should it not? If we call ourselves Christian, then we should live our lives in accordance to the Scriptures, in accordance to the will of God, in accordance to the will of Christ, and be identified not merely by our words, but our commitment to those truths. Simply put, the power of the Holy Spirit accompanies true saving faith. And that power enables the believer to live righteously and perform righteous deeds. Remember Paul in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And we talk about that all the time, that that word power is the Greek word dunamis, and a lot of times it's confused with dynamite because it's the root word to the English word, dynamite, but that's not what Paul means. The gospel isn't dynamite. The gospel is the dunamis. That's God's enabling power through the believer. Through the believer. God enables believer, and he endues them with Holy Ghost power. In Titus 2.14, Paul writing to Titus says this, speaking of Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and notice this, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, notice the end, zealous for good works. Are good works important? Absolutely they are, because they give evidence of salvation. As James puts it in verse 18, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by the works. Look at verse 19. James writes, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe. And they shudder. The King James says, The demons also believe and they tremble. My mentor says this all the time. He goes, You know what the difference is between Christians today and demons? And, you know, of course you go, No, what's the difference? And he says, The demons fear and tremble. Christians today don't tremble or don't fear God. And I think there's truth to that. But here in verse 19, James is using a slight sarcasm. That's what he's doing here. He's anticipating a response from these people, holding that they can have faith without works. And their response that they're going to give, that he's anticipating that they're going to give, is their orthodoxy of belief. That's what he's saying. I have faith. 
Here's the proof of my faith. It's the orthodoxy of my belief. Simply put, they will claim they believe all the right things regarding God and regarding Christ. James, James makes this statement. He says, you believe God is one. And James here is referring to the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, all of thy mind, all of thy soul. This is what he's referring to. They're going to go, we believe that the Lord is one. We believe that God is one. That is the key, by the way. That is the key to orthodox Jewish belief. So he's anticipating that these early Jewish believers are going to hold, well, here's my fundamental. Here's my doctrine. I hold to the Shema. However, accepting certain truths about God, about Christ, and about the gospel does not result merely in saving faith. To prove this, James goes on to make the next statement. You do well. The demons believe and they tremble. James states that orthodoxy alone is insufficient. And to do that, he says, if you were to inquire of the demons, one would find that they have orthodox belief in the person and the work of God. And the demons, if you think about it, they know, they know the following. Demons know that there is one true God. They know that, expressed in three persons. They know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ came to redeem mankind from the curse of the fall. They know that Jesus rose on the third day. They know that there's a great judgment that is going to befall this earth. They know that there is a heaven and a hell. They know that there is forgiveness of sin found in Jesus Christ and him alone, and that one day Satan and his demons will be judged by God and be condemned to outer darkness in the lake of fire for eternity. This they know. You know what's the proof of that? Their existence is dedicated to the harassing and the denouncing of that truth. So that's about as orthodox, right, as you can get in belief. And I know many people today that don't doubt that salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone, believe in Jesus Christ, and son of a virgin, the preexistent Christ, all these other different things. So then the question really becomes, what does saving faith look like? What does it look like? And for this, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we're going to look at verses 33 and 34. Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34. I'm going to redirect a little bit here so that this becomes clear. Why? Because we must get the gospel right. We must get the gospel right. 
If our definition of saving faith is inconsistent or incorrect, then we're not going to understand what James is talking about here. What does saving faith look like? And to do so, I want to look at this prophecy of the new covenant that the prophet Jeremiah gave. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin and will remember it no more. Now this is a prophecy of Israel returning to the Lord, returning to Christ. But this is first seen in the church. This is what I want you to know. It's first seen in the Gentiles. The Gentiles who did not know God will now know God And the same thing will apply to the Gentiles that will eventually apply to Israel. And this prophecy shows us several really important truths. And I want you to see these. What does saving faith look like? Number one, I will put my law within them. Rather than be disobedient, self-willed people as those in the Old Testament that did not obey the law of God, those who are born again by God, given saving faith, have the law of God written upon their hearts. The law of God is written upon their hearts. Hence they love the Lord Jesus and they love God and the commandments of God are not burdensome they're not burdensome at all first John 2 3 says this but whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has been truly perfected by this by this by keeping the word by the love of God being perfected John says By this we know that we are in him. He puts his spirit within the believer. The second truth. They shall be my people. People separated unto God. That's why the world doesn't like most Christians. That's why the world doesn't like born again Christians. Why? Because we don't belong to the world. We're separated unto God. How did they treat Jesus? They hated Jesus. Therefore, Jesus said, hey, if they hate me, guess what? They're going to hate you too. They shall be my people. Romans 8, 14 says this, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What's the third one? And I love this one. They shall all know me. John 17, 3, Jesus said this, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. 
they come and they know God. I always say when people ask me, how do I know if I'm saved? I say, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you love Christ? Is Christ the greatest affection, your greatest desire? Are you hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness? Do you ever get to a point where it's like, God, I, I want more. I want more of you. And fourthly, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Praise God. 1 Corinthians 5.17, you all know this. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creation. I wasn't reformed. I didn't go into spiritual rehab. I was born again, born from above, born from heaven. I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. And guess what happened to all those old sins? They have all passed away. And my life has been made completely new. I'll tell you, I love, I think one of the most important verses in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21, because I think it says everything. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It talks about imputed righteousness. Righteousness that my sin was charged to Christ's account. What got charged to my account? His righteousness. His righteousness. Paul Washer, commenting on this text, says this. Speaking of the redeemed, he says this. They are new people who desire God. They're new people who desire God and delight in his law. Not because they come from better stock than the nation of Israel, but because the Holy Spirit has recreated them. They have become new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away and new things have come. This is what saving faith looks like. It's not a mere confession. It's not a mere proclamation it's not a deed that's done in unrighteousness it's not signing a card or becoming a member of the church or you were born in such and such a religion it is coming to that place where you put your faith and trust in jesus christ and you're born again you're made new saving faith gives us a new heart it gives us a love for god it gives us obedience to his word. We are indwelt with the person of the Holy Spirit, forgiven of our sins, transformed in our beings. Men and women who give evidence to the new birth. Now, the question then becomes, what produces such saving faith? If that's what saving faith looks like, what produces it? Well, there are several things. Number one, repentance. What's repentance? It's turning from your sin and turning to God. I like the definition that repentance is an outward manifestation of an inward act of God. In other words, the work begins inside. You're contrite over your sin. 
You cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness. God grants you mercy and forgiveness and outward manifestation in turning from sin and turning to Christ takes place. What's another thing? There's faith. Faith simply means to entrust oneself fully, wholly, and completely to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Coming to the place where we realize that Christ is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. I throw myself on the mercies of Christ, entrusting myself completely and wholly to him. And that it is the only way to salvation. It's not found in another church. It's not found in another minister or pastor. It's not found in a priest or a rabbi. It's not found in a confession or a baptism or a profession. It's come from a brokenness of sin and a desire for God. Thirdly, there's belief and confession. Now, belief is synonymous with faith. Both involve entrusting oneself. Neither one is intellectual. But what happens with belief is we, by faith, believe, we entrust ourselves to that, and consequently what happens from that is confession, outward confession. We confess Christ, but that confession is accompanied by evidence. And then lastly, there's receiving Christ. And that involves embracing the forgiveness of sin, the newness of life, the love of God, and becoming a child of God and walking in obedience. Now, now each of these are interdependent. You understand when I say interdependent? They're all interdependent one without another. But when it all comes together, it gives evidence of saving faith. The problem with many people today that profess Christ is that some people confess Christ without true godly repentance. Oh, that gospel sounds good. I think I like that. I think I'll call myself a Christian. Others believe facts about Christ. I believe he's the son of God. I believe that he was crucified. I believe he resurrected from the dead without repentance and faith. So they don't love the Lord God with all of their heart, soul, and mind. They don't walk in obedience. And some might confuse belief with biblical faith who do not embrace Christ. And still others believe that professing words or saying a prayer or saying a creed or doing some kind of religious works is the same as saving faith. But they remain powerless Remember Paul's verse there in 2 Corinthians? I didn't come to you with persuasive words. I came to you with power in the Holy Ghost. And consequently, there's never a deliverance from sin. And the question that we all have to ask each other is, or ask ourselves is, what about me? What about me? are the evidence of saving faith 
in my life? Are they present in my life? Again, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. We're not talking about perfection. I'm not asking you, do you walk perfectly? Do you never sin? That's not what I'm asking you. I am asking you, are the evidences of saving faith in your life? Do you have a living and active faith? This is what James is writing to those those Christians that are dispersed. Are there works in your life that give glory to God? If not, then the word of God, and I command you by the word of God, listen, repent, turn to Christ. Don't let another moment of your life tick by. Don't let another day of your life go by without crying out to God and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and being saved. Go back to James chapter 2. Verse 20. After he makes this long argument, after he shows them that faith without works is is. Is, is dead, that you can't just say, hey, be blessed, be warm, and not help your brother or sister after he, takes you, after he takes them down this whole path. He says this in verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? KJV says, faith without works is dead. But this Greek word here, useless, I like it, it's argos. It means it's inactive. It's idle. It's lazy. It should produce something that it's not producing. Do you realize now that I told you that even demons believe and they fear and tremble? Do you believe that lazy and active faith, have you come to the conclusion that it's useless? Hey, Jesus stated this in Matthew 7. 15, he says, look, every tree that does not bear good fruit, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. That cannot and that does not define people who have been born again in Jesus Christ. That does not define the saved, the redeemed. Peter says of the redeemed, we're born again of incorruptible seed. Jesus said of the redeemed, it's the one who bears much fruit, who glorifies God. Again, Paul Washer makes this statement, which I think is great. Through the atoning work, uh, the atoning work of Christ and his regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, God has made for himself a new people. He's made for himself a new people. He has reconciled them and transformed them into a collection of group of individuals who both know him and desire to know him more. This real personal knowledge of God and his will is the distinguishing mark of the true church and will be an ongoing reality in the life of every believer. 
James has been teaching us about what living, active, practical faith in Jesus Christ looks like. And he shows us that saving faith, it survives various tests of suffering, of trials, of perseverance. It's not partial toward anyone. And it gives evidence of faith within him. But saving faith is not contained in a mere profession. It's not contained in, I believe this. That statement has to be accompanied by a new life in Christ. The true believer desires God. The true believer loves God. The true believer yearns for God. So some must ask questions we must ask ourselves are, are we growing in our knowledge of God or are we unmoved in day-to-day apathy? Are we increasing in godliness? Do we hear the Master's voice and follow Him? Or are we deaf and blind and, and move in our own way? Do we have a sure knowledge that God has forgiven our sins and forgotten our iniquities for the sake of His Son, who died and rose again? How do we answer these questions? And I'll close with this. Once again, a quote from Paul Washer. The professing Christian must answer these questions. And it is the duty of the faithful minister of Christ to impress these questions upon the heart and conscience of his flock. So what about us? Where do we stand? Join with me in a word of prayer.